these Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. The game is rigged, and it does not reward people who play by the rules. It's like robbing a bank, except you get the keys. Are you in? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Movie Scramble podcast. In a change to your regular proceedings, it is me, Mary, who is taking charge of things today. God help you all. But, of course, I am joined by the ever-lovely Thomas and John, how are you both? I'm very good, Mary. Just to let everybody know, I am still here. I've not been ousted completely for the podcast. I'm still rebelling against this coup that's taken place, but <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. I'm still good. Learning to live within the new regime. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> you phrase it like that, it makes it sound like we're living in like 1984 or something, but that, that may well be on the way. So, On today's episode, or tonight's episode, whenever you're choosing to consume, we are going to discuss Lorraine Scafaria's Hustlers, which is currently playing on Amazon Prime, because obviously we can't get to the cinema to see any new releases. The film stars Jennifer Lopez and Constance Wu as strippers Ramona and Destiny, respectively, who decide to set up a bit of a scam in a New York strip bar where they work. Tired of not making money, they decide that they are going to start drugging unsuspecting Wall Street patrons and max out their credit cards and steal them in order to fund a more sort of luxurious lifestyle. There was a little bit of outcry when this film came out that it was neglected as part of Oscar season, so our podcast is going to be themed around films that we wish had been nominated for Oscars but weren't at all. Simi, let's start off with you. What did you think of the film? I remember when this film came out, and I watched trailers for it, and I'm not going to lie, the risk of sounding really sexist and misogynistic here. A scantily clad Jennifer Lopez playing a stripper is always going to catch my eye. <laughs> but the film, uh, the trailers did nothing for me, and I thought, you know, if I catch it, I catch it. If I don't, I don't. I'm not going to get my way to watch it. And I wouldn't have done so either in home video if it wasn't for the fact that we'd picked this to do the podcast on. And I, <laughs> I liked this movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought Jennifer Lopez was great in it, as was Constance Wu. It was very stylish. It was quite slick. It was a very easy story to follow. It was based on a true story, based on a magazine article. And yeah, I just thought it was quite a fun, almost like crime caper. And I came away with it thinking, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. But I didn't come away with it saying it was robbed in any way by the Oscars. I'm not surprised it wasn't in contention. But yeah, I did. I did like it. I thought it was pretty good. John? your thoughts your initial reaction to to watching it i was close to thomas's views on this film with a couple of caveats i enjoyed it to begin with i thought the initial build-up of the film was very good but there was a serious dip about 40 minutes into it after all the characters had really been introduced and just before they really started the heist part of it which made it a bit of a struggle to get back into it again for the second half of it, but it did actually achieve its goal, I think. I am in agreement with you, Thomas, in that it wasn't the outstanding film that a lot of people have said in terms of award contention. Obviously, Jennifer Lopez was the star attraction, even though she was only the supporting cast in it, but her performance was a standout, but there was only maybe one or two really memorable moments with her that actually would convince you that it was award-worthy in any way. Now, you've got to take into consideration she got a heap of awards from all sorts of film festivals and various award bodies in the run-up to the the Oscars, so it was a wee bit of a surprise that she didn't even get a nomination, but I totally agree with you in that point. The film itself, like I say, was light, it was easy to follow, but I definitely enjoyed the first half better. It started off very well, opening scene was very reminiscent of a Martin Scorsese film, it was a single shot, it follows Destiny from the dressing room, when she's getting ready with all the other girls and you can tell that it's quite early on in her career she's very nervous and everything and it follows her from there onto the stage as all the girls are introduced for the, the beginning of the night it's all done in one shot very a wee bit like goodfellas in that sort of respect and there, there are a number of elements in this film that i said that's been lifted directly from Goodfellas. There was voiceovers, there was certain scenes, you know, let's let's make some motherfucking money, all this kind of stuff. It worked, Those kind of elements worked very well because they introduced the characters in the way that you always want characters to be introduced. It's show, not tell. You 
got an idea of what this character of Destiny was really like right from the start without her actually having to say a single word to talk about her grandmother or anything like that. It was all there on the screen. Did something similar for the Ramona character as well. When she came on, she was introduced in a very brash way. It worked, but overall, yeah, I had slight reservations about the film. Now, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Where to begin? Well, as you guys know, I texted you about 20 minutes into this film going, guys, this is shit. And my opinion didn't really improve from there. I felt it was a film that relied heavily on the use of montage, which has its places in some movies, but I felt like this this kept repeating the same kind of thing over and over again, whether it was in the strip bar or whether it was when they were, you know, picking up their marks uh, for their, their con or whether it was, you know, opening gifts and spending time together. You know, there was an awful lot of sort of slow-mo, sort of soft focus, like, oh, all the girls are, are dancing with each other and not necessarily in the strip club, just like in life. And I actually thought it was quite dangerous. Like there was a lot of, I was reading a lot of the kind of literature around it and they were like, oh, this film's amazing. It's about female empowerment. It's about, you know, women doing it for themselves. And, you know, they did sort of shoehorn in this angle of, oh, it's okay to take money off these patrons because they're Wall Street guys and Wall Street guys are bad. But actually, if the shoe was on the other foot and we were talking about a film where men were drugging women and taking their credit cards and maxing out their bank accounts, like the uproar would be, you know, unbelievable. It'd be, you know, all men are scumbags, all men are rapists, whatever. And yet there was nothing for that. And in actual fact, it was like, oh, let's give Jennifer Lopez an Oscar. I just, I felt it was really light, but not so light that I could lose myself in it, like The Hunt, which I enjoyed and which was entertaining. It just didn't grab my attention and the more sort of characters they brought into it as these kind of long cons or whatever increased the more messy it got and I just I never felt engaged enough or like I not that you could relate to the characters but I didn't even feel anything for them it wasn't like oh that's a shame they're working in strip clubs and they're really struggling like there wasn't anyone in this who I thought oh she's the one that I'll sort of you know connect with or she's got a good story to her I just thought it was really messy and I I couldn't understand the more the film went on the more I was like how on earth did anyone think this was Oscar fodder but I I felt bad for ragging on it because I feel like you know it it was a you know a female director and you know sort of strong female cast or whatever but it just it didn't do anything for me at all not even the sight of of half-naked Jennifer Lopez could stir my interest I'm afraid I think that's one of the things I, had, I thought was quite weak in the film was the there was no natural progression for me. That they're working the strippers and the whole point they're, they're just fleecing these Wall Street men for money, mm-hmm. which led to them getting them drunk and fleecing for their money to just oh let's just start drugging them instead because it's easier. And mm-hmm. it didn't feel like any natural progression. Like the things just seemed to happen to further the, further the plot. And it was a case that we need to get our characters from here to here. So let's just say okay we're gonna start drugging them now. Why? That's quicker. Well, you, you, they're not a good thing, but they're doing was working. I don't understand really why they had to take it a bit further. That was, but then became illegal because what they were doing before, although immoral, wasn't really, wasn't illegal. They were getting rich men drunk, taking them to a strip club, and taking advantage of them. But that's what strip clubs do, <laughs> anyway. To people, that's what that's what they're about on. And I thought that was quite funny. We were watching it, but then inside drugging them, I was like, right. The sympathy I have with these characters is kind of went out the window now. But I also don't understand why they've got to this stage already. Yeah, it escalated really quickly. Like, all of a sudden, they had a shitload of, like, MDMA and ketamine in somebody's kitchen, and they were making up these little vials of uh, of liquid to, to spike people's drinks with. And it's like, whoa, where did that come from? As you say, you know, the getting them drunk and getting them to sign checks was working. Where, where was that escalation point? It did seem a bit kind of... Maybe that took longer in real life. Maybe that sort of progressed over a series of weeks or months or whatever. But in the film, it was a matter of minutes, I'm pretty sure. Which I found strange is... This is a film is about an hour and forty minutes long, so it's not it's not as short as film. It felt longer. It's, it's, a, it's a decent running time for a movie, and it was based on a, a viral article. Did they have much substance to make a movie out of this? Because it seemed to be, as you said, they kept repeating the same montage shots, they kept repeating the same plot points. And it's like, right, we get it, we get what they're doing. What happens next? It's almost like they didn't have enough material to make a full movie out of this. And just kept repeating things till it drummed in. Yeah. And then there's a lot of gratuitous shots, like, you know, oh, ushers in the in the strip club and stuff like that. And it's like, 
what the like there was so much stuff that I felt was either not relevant like that whole scene with with Usher or stuff that I felt was really like as I say shoehorned in like the whole speech that Ramona gave about you know these are Wall Street guys and Wall Street guys are bad and you know Wall Street's why we have no money and I just like it just all felt a bit icky like nothing seemed to flow naturally including the progression of what what they did with their with their cons or whatever and you know there's a scene where a guy phones up and obviously he's been the victim of, of one of their nights out and he's like you know please I've got no money it's just me and my son my son has autism I need money in the bank and you know they're just like nope hang up the phone and it's like how did those women get to that stage as well again where was the progression from oh it's okay to take money from from guys who you know have it to just reading everyone's bank accounts regardless of their circumstance i think part of that was to do with the fact that if they actually went to the club in the first place they were kind of fair game so therefore the the morals kind of went out the window going back to your point about characters i didn't really like any of the characters in this film and I don't think I was supposed to I think they were all kind of reprehensible in their own way, they were all out for something some of them obviously had motives and reasons behind it but when it came down to it they were there was nobody really likeable in the film at all, I agree with you with the point that you made Thomas about the story they had to introduce the element of the magazine article or the Vire article, I should say, getting produced as well to kind of, almost to kind of pad it out and to give it a wee bit of structure and a wee bit of a flow to it as well, just because otherwise it would have just been really quick and it would have been a, a little bit disjointed as well. It's interesting, John, I do agree with you that the characters weren't likeable and there wasn't really much to, to, to sympathise or even empathise with them however I don't think that was intentional I think I think we were supposed to be written for them in a way because they kept painting the Wall Street as the bad guys it was like these are bad men these are bad 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 these are like spending money in strip clubs that actually have firemen's pensions and stuff and I kind of bought into all that because uh, the Wall Street crash is still very uh, fresh in our minds and it is very difficult to feel sorry for these guys getting fleeced off a bunch of strippers. That didn't necessarily paint them as the goodies by default, although I think the film tried to for a lot of it. Mm. And even at the end, without kind of going too much spoilers, I think it did try to go, well, look, they weren't too bad compared to what these guys did. They may have went too far, but they're not the bad yeah. guys. There was obviously a, an element of, there was no sympathy for the, the victims, especially from the police because at first they didn't believe it it would happen at all. There's a scene in it where a policeman takes a phone call from a guy and he hears him saying, yeah, I was at the strip club and I got fleeced. And he just puts the phone down on him right away because he's like, you know, what are you going to do about that? And then when it does actually become a real thing, the policeman actually says, you know, we were we were worried. We were so worried. We actually stopped going to the strip club ourselves. <laughs> you know? Yeah, OK, I'll give you that. That that one line did, did raise a chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> I think for, for me, and as I say, if the shoe was on the other foot and this is a film about men doing these things to women, the uproar would quite rightly be rather large. For me, this film didn't just take, oh, Wall Street men are bad. Like, by extension, it was like all men because there's not a, really a positive portrayal of men in this movie at all. The people that come to the club are aggressive and if they get taken into the private rooms, they just basically want blowjobs or they want them to take their clothes off or do things that they're not supposed to do. Any examples that we see of boyfriends in the film, like Destiny's boyfriend and another girl, I can't remember her name, her boyfriend shows up at the club all the time and is constantly stalking her. There's, you know, domestic abuse. There's and Constance's gran, sorry, Constance was character's gran. Her husband is absent. There's no father figure in Ramona's child's life. Like men are either there, and when they're there, they are awful, and or they're not there, and that in itself is telling because they're you know, they're like absent fathers or whatever. So I just felt that it it just felt like a very kind of finger pointing that you know men are bad, not just the Wall Street men, all men. And it just kind of stuck in my throat a little bit, no pun intended. It just, it, it felt too contrived for me. What did you think about the use of music in the film? I thought it was quite well done. They used a lot of music that actually told the story itself. 
for instance, the the music for the opening scene with Destiny was actually from Fiona Apple. It was a track called Criminal, and there was various other tracks in there that were quite pointed in terms of their title and the, the subject. Obviously, there was tracks from Usher, there was mm-hmm. Janet Jackson's Control, things like that. So there was a lot of stuff in there that did tell the story as it was going along, just as a background. I thought that was very cleverly done, and it was very subtly done. It was never really in the foreground because if you didn't really actually take the time to go and have a wee look and see what the soundtrack was, you would just think it was this pumping soundtrack for a strip club. But I, I thought it did work quite well in that sort of respect. Yeah, and there's the use of Lord's Royal when Ramona goes to the ATM machine as well, which is obviously about aspiring to a certain lifestyle, but living in, you know, kind of small crumbling towns or whatever, which obviously reflects the, the reality of their situation. Yeah, I mean, the, mu- the music was good. I- I'll-, I'll give you that. There's a couple of, a bit of Flow Rider in there as well, which I was quite enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> but why do you think this film was touted so strongly around Oscar season like what do you think the sort of reasons were that people were really pushing for this to be nominated and I'm not even sure in which sense they wanted it to be nominated like was it best film was it best director was it best supporting actress like what do you think the push was? From what I could tell from the articles at the time and bear in mind I hadn't seen the movie so I couldn't make a judgment on any performances or the film itself but it seemed to be surrounding the cast and it was looking for women of colour to be nominated at the Oscars. I felt that was kind of lacking. That was the impression I got from it. And I thought, like I said, I thought Jennifer Lopez was great in this film. I think she is really good. And I wasn't surprised after seeing it that it didn't get a nomination. If I'd watched this at the time and it didn't come up in contention, I don't think I'd have batted an eyelid towards it. And if you think about it, obviously it's a nice fairy tale story surrounding the film. If Jennifer Lopez gets a, a nomination for a part, considering she's in her 50s now. Mm-hmm. Yep, she turned 50 a while ago, yep. Yep, and obviously Constant Wu's just come off the, the back of Crazy Rich Asians as well. So there's a certain amount of hype and, as you say, people of colour. So yes, uh, there was probably a bit of a push on that sort of level, but ultimately... It was rejected by those all-knowing people at the Oscars. And for exactly. once, I think they were right. <laughs> and granted, I may have actually missed this in the, in the timeline, the narrative, but I didn't see any push for this at a war season until after the fact. Complaints that it hadn't been nominated. Yeah, it, it was almost a sort of what? complaints about omission as opposed, I mean, the lists of these are probably circulated well in advance, but it was almost like complaints about a mission as opposed to a campaign to push for it to be nominated, I suppose. I'm not really sure if any of the people that were pushing for it had seen it, or if they'd just gone, oh, do you know what, there's there's loads of women in that film, that should be nominated. And this is where I get a bit grumpy about the, because I'd rather see a film where there was a strong female-led cast and it was actually decent as a po- because even this in itself is just like oh well we, you know they're strippers it's like can we can we have a film where you know women can keep their clothes on and also be oscar nominated that would be lovely mm-hmm. i think the push for it really started with the toronto international film festival it won an award there and that's usually an indicator of a film that's going to go on to do bigger and better thing by winning that game that initial push it obviously had a platform but obviously never managed to move on from there which is kind of interesting but not really surprising given the, the content of it i don't think it was massively widely released either like oscar fodders usually gets kind of front and center billions at you know your local friendly multiplex and i don't think this was too widely released at the time i don't remember it being anyway but i, I might be wrong on that point no don't think you're wrong yeah it did feel like it would been advertised for ages i kept seeing trailers for it but i didn't see it about out long once it did yeah do you guys have anything else you'd like to add on the the wonder that is hustlers nope I'm spent with that <laughs> in regards to that. Uh, the I mean, do you want to deliberate any more on Jennifer Lopez's skills on the pole? Yeah, the good people of Malaysia uh, didn't get a chance to see Jennifer Lopez's good skills in the pole as the film was banned for excessive obscene content. Really? It's a film about strippers? What did they expect? <laughs> oh, well, do you know what? Actually, that's done the good people of Malaysia a, a service. <laughs> They don't need to see this. For anyone that is listening that is intrigued, Hustlers is obviously playing on Amazon Prime just now. And as we intimated, the film did kind of receive a bit of a push towards, you know, why wasn't it nominated for an Oscar? And that got us thinking about several of the films that we love that weren't Oscar nominated 
either we believe unjustly so we're going to chat about those in the next section of the pod so my first pick of films that were not oscar nominated that should have been is 2017's you were never really here which was written and directed by lynn ramsey I can't believe this film actually was was overlooked because I actually think this is a better Joaquin Phoenix performance than he gave in The Joker. The film basically tells the story of Joe, who's a kind of traumatised war veteran who now makes a living by recovering stolen or, or missing children. And the whole film is just this really tense 90 minutes of violence and fever dream and just really really atmospheric kind of sweeps you up in this sort of character who's a bit of a mess and kind of falling apart but ultimately you are kind of rooting for him because his task is a good one he's going to find children that have been stolen from their parents or have gone missing. Joaquin Phoenix is this sort of overweight long-haired bearded shambles and he's using his military training obviously to to help in his new line of work but at the same time you're not convinced that he maybe is necessarily all good guy because he is quite handy with his hammer um, I thought it's really well directed I was really shocked that Lynn Ramsey was overlooked and actually it would have been nice to see a woman nominated in the best director category for such a good film and actually as I say I thought this was a better Joaquin Phoenix performance than, than he gave in Joker there's a particular scene in the hotel come brothel type thing which is shown through like CCTV as his character goes to find this missing child and I, I remember just holding my breath the entire time and you don't even see that much it's obviously shown through sort of specific camera angles but it was so tense and just almost unbearable to watch because you're like well not everyone's going to make this make out this alive and what's going to happen and he's just such an interesting central character and I thought that he should have been nominated and I actually thought that Lynn Ramsey should have been nominated as well I take it you guys have both seen this yes mm-hmm Yes, did you enjoy it i think enjoy is the wrong oh, word maybe the wrong word yeah with this film and this kind of goes back to our last podcast with movies we're talking about we'd watch once and that was it available in the movie scramble podcast archives and i did like this film it was an endurance it wasn't really something i was sitting watching that i was like oh, this, this, is quite, this is quite a good romp <laughs> it was brutal it was hard. It was hard to watch. I felt at times just for the the subject matter, the style of it, just the atmosphere of it. Yeah. Wacken Phoenix is is brilliant. Wacken Phoenix is brilliant in everything it does, more or less. He's he's an incredible actor, and I thought it was absolutely outstanding in this. I, I like Lynn Ramsey. She's a great director. She has an ability to make you really feel horrible when watching a movie. Just yeah. this real uneasiness and. I got that with this as well, and it's very violent with it being gratuitous. It's just really hard-hitting. And I'm not surprised the Oscars overlooked it for those aspects. But at the same time, I do think, especially with the best director and best actor, it easily could have or should have been in contention. Yeah, it had no nominations at all. It actually surprised me to read that it was released in 2017. It doesn't feel like that long ago that I saw it. But yeah, it had no nominations at all and I was really quite shocked because I felt really absorbed in it. I went to see it at the cinema. I felt it was really atmospheric and I was just surprised that it, it was just so overlooked as far as I was concerned. Yeah, it was one of my favourite films of the year. It's on my top ten list. found it massively unsettling but I really, really loved this film. Great performance by Mackin Phoenix. I liked the way that it switched between the, the hitman and he was like caring for his mother and everything as well. Mm-hmm. It, was just, it was amazing. Very, very good role for him. And I just it did inform the way that he kind of tackled the Joker. There's a lot of similarities between those two roles. Great yeah. film. And it was a scandal that it didn't get nominated for anything. Yeah. Yeah, it was like not, a, not even a whisper of a, or a hint of anything. Like, and it was, I just feel it's like one of those really, really underappreciated gems of the last few years. John, I believe you're next for your pick. Yes, my first pick is the 2000 film In the Mood for Love, which was directed by Wong Kar Wai, stars Maggie Chung and Tony Leung. It's set in Hong Kong, 1962, and it's the story of two people who have a relationship without actually having a relationship. They both arrive in the same apartment building on the same day with their respective spouses and their paths start crossing as they go about their daily lives. She's a secretary, I believe, and he is a reporter on a newspaper and their spouses are both high flyers or business types and they're 
always away from their marital homes. And both of them separately figure out that their opposites are playing away and they come to the conclusion that they're actually having an affair together. So what they do is they start to basically reenact what they think this other couple are actually doing. They start to get closer, but they make the decision to not actually take it in a physical route because then that would basically make them as bad as the people that they're actually hating. It's very sweet. It's beautiful. It's an absolutely gorgeous film. It's fantastic soundtrack to it as well there's very memorable music loved everything about this film and when i look back on it i cannot for the life of me think why this was not oscar nominated it's the kind of thing that they would normally really go for and i just don't understand why it was overlooked no idea i totally agree with you john as you know that was that was going to be on on my list as well i think it's stunning it's like brimming with sexual tension even though as you say they don't even touch or anything it's a very platonic relationship that they have it's beautifully shot and the cello music through i remember the first time i saw it i actually cried because it was just so stunning i'd never seen anything like it i can't believe again i can't believe this wasn't nominated for anything as you say this is kind of standard oscar fodder but it's oh it's a stunning film i haven't seen it it's quite hard to get a hold of. I've tried to get like DVD copies of it a few times. It's quite hard to get a hold of. And it would help. Thomas obviously with a like a six or a seven in the title. Then it would probably be more appealing. <laughs> in the mid for love nine. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the the sequel when it goes in space. Sammy, <laughs> <laughs> your first pick. I have went with the 2007 film by David Fincher, Zodiac. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, and Robert Downey Jr. It tells the story of the manhunt for the famous or the infamous Zodiac Killer, a serial murderer who terrorised San Francisco Bears during the late 60s and 70s. He would taunt the police with letters and clothing and riddles and ciphers and clues to who he was, and he was never found. To this day, he's never been found. This film made it to many critics' top 10 lists that year. Only two other films featured more. No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. Bong Joon-ho has it in his top 10 list of all time. It's an incredible movie. It's so drawn out. It's very stylistic with David Fincher. It's got that look of a David Fincher film. It's a very gripping detective drama. It's gritty, it's stylish, it's slick, it's brutal, it's got great performances. It was also Downey Jr. This is before Iron Man as well. Kind of showing that kind of comeback trailer was on before they really exploded back in the mainstream. But it didn't get so much as one nomination at the Academy Awards. It was interesting because when I was looking at this, I thought, I'm not surprised this didn't get anything. Then again, maybe just, maybe there's something against Fincher and I went back and looked at Seven. Even Seven got a nomination. Granted it was for Best Editing or something, but Seven got a nomination and Zodiac was in total what and Fincher was a name by this point it's very very established as a, one of the greatest directors of his generation and they just didn't get care when it came to the awards which I found was very interesting and disappointing have you seen this movie? I have not I have it you'll be unsurprised to learn <laughs> I do actually have it sitting on my shelf but I've never watched it it's one of these ones that's always on the list but never seem to get around to it but based on your description it's probably going to jump up a wee bit now I think if you, like David, if you like David Fincher, I think you like this movie. Yeah. It's, it's a, I, I need to go back and watch it again to say it's his best movie because I haven't watched it in a long time. It came, I mean, it came out in 2007. It's arguably his most complete movie. Have you seen it, Mary? This is confession time. I watched it once and fell asleep. So, and do you know, finally enough, Chris always goes on about how amazing this film is, but I think because my memory of it is, oh, I fell asleep, so it can't have been good, but perhaps it's something I need to revisit. Because I do like David Lee Seven. Like, Seven is one of my all-time favourites, so maybe I should go back and revisit. Definitely. And the thing about Zodiac is it's a very unique detective story, because no, this is not mean by a spoiler, they never catch him. Yeah. He finds himself, well, how can this film be any good? when there's no payoff to it, except there is a payoff. I won't spoil that for you, but it remains gripping. And it's a, it's a cat and mouse hunt where you never really see the mouse. All the focus is on the cat, the detective. It's all about them. It's just so massively done. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's great in there. Mark Ruffalo, you know, I love that guy in anything. I think he's an incredible yeah, actor. great cast. It's a great cast. So it's a potent cast of Anthony Edwards, Brian Cox, Elias Cotis as well. It's in Chloe Sabine. 
it's an outstanding outstanding cast brilliant film just like I say it looks like a Fincher movie as well when you're watching it and yeah I find the film is very underrated in the grand scheme of things if you watch it you can kind of see where it ticks all these Oscar boxes yeah and I'm surprised that you even saying that Seven was only nominated for best editing I think it is best the Academy have something against Fincher watch this space <laughs> we've cracked one of Hollywood's greatest mysteries on the podcast guys <laughs> <laughs> My second pick, and again, I'm surprised to find that this was not Oscar nominated at all, and it's kind of ties in nicely with my first pick, is 1982's The King of Comedy by Martin Scorsese, directed by Martin Scorsese. And for me, the first time I saw this film, I felt like it was like childlike wonder when I was sitting watching the screen. I just couldn't go over it. It was such a kind of unusual film for both Scorsese and De Niro at the time. It's before De Niro obviously sort of flexed his comic chops and other kind of more recent roles. It obviously tells the story of, of Rupert Pupkin, who is this kind of wannabe, really lonely stand-up comedian, or at least he thinks he is, who idolises TV host Jerry Langford, played by Jerry Lewis. And he just really wants a slot on his show. Like, he practices in his house every night where he's got little cardboard cutouts of, you know, Liza Minnelli, and he shows up at the TV studio, and he's dressed in, like, a bright orange suit with, with cream loafers, and he just... He's so desperate to be noticed. And it's a kind of madcap sort of caper type of thing where you're not really supposed to feel sorry for Rupert because he's obviously not well. And I think that's uh, putting it lightly. But at the same time, he is this kind of sympathetic character because everybody's had dreams that, you know, they could be a, a famous actor or a famous singer or whatever. And you are supposed to kind of go along with his kind of delusion. And then you've got Sandra Bernhardt, who's just doing her sort of usual kind of madcap crazy comedy. I mean, there's a scene where she's got Terry Lewis tied to a chair and she's wearing this negligee. And it's just, it's all a bit crazy. And I really loved this film. I thought, as I say, I thought it was really different for Scorsese and De Niro. And there's obviously major overtures towards this film in The Joker as well. And cleverly cast in De Niro as the TV show host in that movie. But I'm surprised that, again, there was just nothing. Like, it won a couple of awards, I think, in the sort of festival circuit. But to me, there was I, I just thought it was so unusual for, for both involved that I was surprised there was just nothing for it at all. And it's a movie that I really enjoy and will we'll go back to time and time again, actually. I'm assuming you guys have seen it as well. Yeah, interesting. I thought I watched this film. <sighs> Relatively... Say relatively relatively recently, it was last year. Now I watched it. I wanted to see it before Joker mm-hmm. came out, knowing the influences in that because a film I thought I had seen, and then I sat down and watched it. I realised no, I think I've had this on the background before. I started it, but I definitely hadn't seen it. It's a brilliant movie. I think it's one of Scorsese's most underrated films, yeah. including De Niro's underrated performance. It is excellent. It's a cracking choice. I think there's a, a bit of a problem with Scorsese and De Niro based on the fact that they produce such good work regularly that it's often regarded as being just another good Scorsese film or another good De Niro film. And it's not treated in the, the same way as it would be if it was like a one-off brilliant performance that you would get from other directors or other actors or screenwriters or what have you. It's because of their consistency, it's just, well, it's good. Clint Eastwood was like that for a while as well with his films. He was regarded as being a good director, but he's consistently good without being regarded as great. There wasn't the same push to say, oh, this was another great film. It's just, it's right up there with his best work, but, you know. Look at his best work. We, we, we didn't award anything for that either. I mean, it took until The Departed for Scorsese to win an Oscar. Yeah, and, and, and I get that. But at the same time, you've got somebody like Meryl Streep, who, again, is consistently excellent and will get the nominations. I mean, she I think she holds the record for the most nominations in Oscar history in ter- and in terms of I think she has the most wins as well, tied with Catherine Hepburn. So it's just interesting how this was overlooked. And as you say, you know, Scorsese didn't get his first Oscar until The Departed. It's funny how some people are rewarded for their consistency and, and others maybe aren't. It's interesting as well. You mentioned that John is at this point people were kind of like, oh well, it's another Scorsese De Niro collaboration that were kind of underestimated. Like you just kind of got used to them in a sense because of it. Mm-hmm. But this was before Casino, like Kate Fear and things like that as well. It was, uh, it's still arguably their best movies. I mean, I know you had Taxi Driver in the seventies, you had Rage and Bull just before this, but there were so many films they made after that. I think people hold in a higher esteem mm-hmm. than they do this. And yeah. maybe because it's a comedy or comedy of sorts as well. Maybe it wasn't taken as seriously as the others in that kind of catalogue. 
I don't know. No, you could be right because I mean, I, I, I think I think the film definitely as a comedy. I think it's meant to be a comedy. It's supposed to be. It's got quite a humorous ending. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what people's problem. It was that it wasn't this dark, serious insight into the human mind. Although it was very much a Scorsese De Niro collaboration. If you compare it to Raging Bull and compare it to Taxi Driver, there is similarities in the style and its portrayal of the character and the psychology of the of the individual. But this is supposed to be a comedy, and it is. I think people didn't like the fact that it was supposed to be funny. Almost a lot of ways, American Psycho, I mean, American Psycho is a, a comedy. It's intended to be one, and people don't like the fact they're supposed to laugh at it. I think it was similar with this, because the guy clearly had mental issues. Yeah. And he's kidnapped. He's hero. He's got some crazy outlandish demands to get his cell phone TV, and it is totally preposterous. Yeah, I think people may have thought to themselves, I don't find this funny. Yeah, or maybe just didn't take to the the character, perhaps. Yeah, it's an odd one. It's, a, it's kind of one of those ones that I think is genuinely quite quite underrated. John, your second pick. My second pick is the 1958 Orson Welles film. This is a film that, well, basically it goes without saying if it's an Orson Welles film, it would be a troubled production, and there's obviously a, a real problem actually getting it out into the screens in the first place. But I'll come back to that in a moment. It's a film noir, if you like. Uh, a bomb is set off in a car that has just crossed the border between Mexico and the United States. And obviously that's very politically sensitive. So the local police, fronted by corrupt cop played by Orson Welles himself. I don't know if he's wearing a fat suit, but he's particularly large in this film. I don't know if that's <laughs> when he's in, he's, when he's starting to go into a large period. On the other side of that, there's a Mexican drug enforcement agent, strangely played by Charlton Heston, in a role that he, somebody like Charlton Heston would never be allowed within a thousand miles of. So it's the playoff between these two characters that are trying to investigate the crime. The Orson Welles' character wants the crime sorted very quickly, tries to frame somebody for it, whereas the character of Vargas, the Heston character, wants to actually find out who did it and why they did it. And it's a bit, bit of a cat and mouse game involving elements in both sides of the border. It's a really, really cracking film. Again, as I said, it was beset by problems. Orson Welles saw this as being the film that was going to launch him back into the big time. Unfortunately, after it was finished, the control of the film was taken away from him. There was major cuts made to it. It was taken down to a 93-minute runtime, which Welles was not happy about. He wrote uh, basically a book. It was 58 pages of notes that he handed over about what changes needed to be made in order to restore the film and take it back to its former glory, which was promptly ignored. So therefore, <laughs> the film was released in its original cut. Sorry, I should say not its original cut, the cut that the studio had put out. It was liked, but it didn't gain any traction in terms of real popularity or any sort of award success. It was only later on when the film was restored, taking into consideration some of the notes that Wells did actually produce, there was a longer version of it. I think they added about 20 minutes of footage to it. It's just an amazing piece of work. There's an opening scene in this film, which is reminiscent of Hustlers, showing that I do a wee bit of research here and try and cross-pollinate my choices, <laughs> of a single shot where you see the bomb getting put into the car and it travels a couple of miles in the crowded Mexican streets before it actually crosses the border. And this is all done within a single shot, the camera following it. And it's technically brilliant. It's about three and a half minutes long. And it must have taken so much planning to do that because there's so many moving parts, so many extras. It's all done out on location and everything as well. Brilliant piece of work. But for whatever reason, it just didn't seem to ignite interest in it, even though later on it has now been regarded as this phenomenal piece of work and Orson Welles is his height, if you like. But yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Have either of you seen this? I haven't seen it. No, I haven't seen it either. But I'm just wondering if Oscar, if Orson Welles managed to piss off enough people <laughs> with his 58 pages of notes and maybe that's why it didn't get nominated for anything. I think that was probably yeah one of the reasons. He was notoriously difficult to work with at times. He, he was very much a an actor's director. In this film especially, he worked very closely with the actors. He did a lot of rehearsals and improv and 
he was prompting actors themselves to like rewrite lines in order to make it more authentic for what they thought their characters were like. And that was quite refreshing for a lot of the actors because they were just used to coming in there's the script, this is how you do it. You know, they weren't given yeah. much scope. But on the other side of that, yeah, that would kind of piss off executives. They, they just want something that could actually get put out there. In fact, the film was actually put out as the second feature in a double bill. It wasn't actually put out as the main feature when it was wow. actually released, which is just unbelievable, considering it's something that's regarded as having cultural importance and it's been put into the National Congress Library in the US. It's just, it's unbelievable to think that this type of film was disregarded so easily at the time. Absolutely, that definitely sounds like somebody trying to take him down a peg or two or whatever. That definitely sounds like that. Simi, your second choice. I have went with a film from 1995. I have went with Michael Mann's Heat. Star Nob De Niro, Al Pacino, Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore and John Voight. It tells the story of De Niro, who is a seasoned professional bank robber, and Pacino, who is the cop who was signed to try and take him down. It's very simple. Kind of in terms of plots, again, go back to the idea of Zodiac, it's the cat and mouse type idea. You've got the haggard detective, the seasoned bank robber, on a collision course. This movie is actually a remake of an unsuccessful, sorry, an unproduced TV series, and the pilot was reworked as a standalone TV movie called LA Takedown. But the movie uh, had a decent budget behind it. Michael Mann, very big director. And it was the first movie to have De Niro and Pacino on screen at the same time. They both starred in The Godfather Part 2, but with De Niro playing the younger Corleone, Told flashbacks and we're never going to meet. But in this, that was a big thing. And you'd think they'd get a nomination for at least a Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, considering how widely renowned this movie is, especially for the acting. Didn't get one nomination at all. Nothing for directing, cinematography, script, nothing. And when you look at the movies that were nominated for the 68th Academy Awards, which this has been in contention for, there's very stiff competition from the winners. You had movies like Braveheart, Leaving Las Vegas, Usual Suspects. This was also the year that Seven was nominated for its its best editing. (laughs) Batman Forever was nominated for many movies this year. Toy Story was also in contention for things. Casino was nominated for one Oscar. And interestingly enough, De Niro wasn't in contention for that either. It wasn't De Niro's year at that time. But yeah, I mean, this movie, I was really surprised to see this hadn't been nominated for an Oscar. We look at the legacy that's left and just the talent involved. And it's not like a bad movie either. I mean, Righteous Kill came out in 2008, I think it was. And that also had uh, De Niro and Pacino standing together. And nobody really cared because the movie wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. And then obviously The Irishman came out last year. Again, big focus on the cast and the fact that both of them teamed up with Scorsese. But with this, yeah, it just seemed to get totally overlooked. And it's, it's a movie that's very widely loved. It's considered a kind of modern classic of its era. It's got that very Michael Mann style to it. You, you would never be f- uh, mistaken watching it for any other director. But for whatever reason, they just got overlooked. Yeah, another thing I would kind of mention about this film as well, it's about three hours long, which when it came out at a time, <laughs> that much of an eyelid. But interestingly enough, if it came out now, people will be timing toilet breaks around it and Googling how to watch it in 20-minute installments. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of you seen Heat? Yes, and I'm genuinely surprised that there, again, wasn't anything, like not even a, an actor or supporting actor or anything. And to be honest with you, apart from the usual suspects and maybe Braveheart, like the list of other contenders for that year doesn't sound so good that I can say, oh, well, it's quite easy to see why, you know, Heat was so overlooked. It seems a strange omission. It is a strange one, and regarding kind of films legacy and impact, for me, being a massive fan of The Dark Knight, the opening scene of that movie is just lifted from heat, and it's mm-hmm. not oh, a yeah. coincidence either, and it's not it's supposed to be Christopher Nolan ripping him off, it's a clear love letter. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can really see a lot of Michael Mann and Christopher Nolan, I think, but John, John you like the film, yeah? I had issues with it when I saw it at the time. I think the film peaks too early, basically because of the getaway scene that you mentioned there, which is at the start of The Dark Knight, is the high point in terms of the action scenes. The action scene at the end is really pale by comparison to when it's set at the airport, I think it is. 
Yeah. It, it just it didn't work in the same way. It felt like a real letdown. And basically, you could have cut Val Kilmer out of this film and made it a two hour and 15 minute film because he was he was shite and he was just really really bad in this film from his ponytail down it just did not work at all (laughs) what an amazing comment i honestly val kilmer was my first crush i remember going to see him and as batman i'm not having any bad words against val kilmer yeah i'm not saying he's not a good actor but he was awful in this film it just it was meant to i mean he was an explosives expert for goodness sake (laughs) Maybe he just got so nervous because he was working with De Niro and Pacino. Well, he kind of did get shown up a wee bit by yeah. the, the other talent on screen, but I thought he could have been he could have been gone, and it would made not. If you think about it, see if you watch that film without him being in it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't make any difference to the film whatsoever. It could just be someone, oh, you know, where's the explosives guy? Oh, he's away to get the stuff, rather than him, <laughs> <laughs> rather than him rocking up. With his, his tight jeans on and his, his big hair, you know, <laughs> you know, looking for detonators, that kind of thing. You're going, you don't need this. <laughs> Get back to the real life. Oh, I really want to sake. watch uh, Heat again, just as I can <laughs> the ponytail. That's amazing. I mean, that's, that's the thing with this movie, like I said, it's kind of considered like a modern classic. It's not one of my favourite movies. It's not a film I've got a particularly massive amount of love and admiration for... But I'm very surprised it didn't get nominated for an Oscar. Especially when you look at the, the, the two lead actors and the fact that it was their first on-screen performance against each other. And, yeah, you can see it just really surprised me that this hadn't been nominated. Yeah. More so than Huskers, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I thought at least one or the other would have been at least in the running, just based on that scene where they're sitting in the cafe. Yeah. It's just a, a masterclass, really, isn't it? And how to yeah. play off of each other works very well. Curse of Al Kilmer, I'm telling you. That's what, that's what did for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. forever. Got a good few nominations that year. Yeah. Island of Dr. Moreau, not so many. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to feel like you've got a bit of a vendetta against Kilmer. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. I must admit, I do, because he ruined uh, the adaptation of Joan Espo's The Snowman. So yeah, uh, yeah, he's the oh spoilers, he's the serial killer, but it's just his voice that you hear. <laughs> I've forgotten he was in that. Yeah. And also, I don't know why they started with like book seven in the Harry Hole series, but that's a that's a story for another podcast. My last pick is 1948's Rope, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I'm actually sitting looking at the poster for it just now. I don't think Hitchcock ever won an Oscar in his lifetime. I think he may have been given an honorary Oscar at one point, but he never won Best Director. And I certainly think that John Dahl was really overlooked for his role in this film as well. The plot of it is adapted from a stage play and it stars John Dahl as Brandon and Farley Granger as Philip, who are two high school students, if you can believe that, given that they both look, act and dress like they're in their 40s. And basically the plan is they want to get away with the perfect murder, so they murder one of their classmates. It's shot in a continuous take, like in 1917 recently. And Jimmy Stewart rocks up as Professor Rupert Cadell, who taught the guys at uni, and is now wondering why they're all acting a bit strangely at this dinner party that they're set to throw and why one of their friends hasn't turned up. It's an absolute masterclass of suspense. I think the one take really adds to that, and the fact that the camera doesn't really leave this this living room there's a lot of sort of tense conversations there's a lot of like oh we know where the body is or oh don't, don't sit on that or don't move that and it's it's really like not hyperbolic in its depiction of the murder but it is quite sort of tongue-in-cheek and sort of you know knowing wink to the audience and it is kind of Hitchcock just sort of enjoying himself I think. John Dahl gives an absolutely amazing performance as Brandon you know this sort of bratty entitled college student who thinks that it's his right to you know snuff out a life as he sees fit because he thinks he's better educated and you know more classy. The script was written by Hume Cronin who turned up as the nosy neighbour in Shadow of a Doubt which is one of my all-time favourite Hitchcocks and in fact probably my favourite film and I just think it's a re- it really works well as a bit of suspense it's got a great cast really good performances and the whole sort of continuous take thing was you know really ahead of its time and I'm it, again just nothing no no Oscars for absolutely anyone and I feel like in John Dahl's case that's a particular oversight because he is really really excellent in this as well as obviously Jimmy Stewart 
Have you guys seen this movie? Do you know, I haven't seen it. I probably have it in DVD somewhere. That's, that's the worst part of it. If you have I, have, I, love, I love this film. I think it's one of the first Hitchcocks I actually saw. Yeah. Saturday afternoon telly, you know, one of these kind of things. It's a fantastic movie. Loved every single minute of it. It's a bit of a, a different, slightly different type of James Stewart performance as well. He's he's not the lovable guy in it so much. There's a wee bit of a darker edge to him as well. Yeah. When he kind of realises that a lot of what the, the other guys are doing is based on what he's taught them. So there's there's that kind of element to it as well. He's not quite the assured character that you normally get from him as well it's a fantastic film there was obviously an awful lot made with single continuous shot mm-hmm. so sometimes i think maybe the second time i watched it you i watched it with the intention of just working out where all the shots are which oh, yeah. i didn't really think about it the first time i watched it and that can be a problem sometimes if you're watching these type of films and you're looking for the joins rather than actually just enjoying the story but it didn't detract from it the first time i watched it cracking movie but Again, it's one of these cases, I think I brought it up earlier, consistent body of work, doing really well all the time, so therefore it's ah, it's just another Hitchcock film, it's what you come to expect from him, so therefore it doesn't get the attention that it would normally. Yeah, and I, and I do think that somebody with his body of work, I mean I still think Frenzy is one of his best and I know that's not to everyone's taste but I think that somebody who's produced you know like really iconic cinema like you know moments that are always you know everyone knows about the the cycle the the shower scene the birds rear window don't know how many times that's been remade for somebody who's produced such iconic pieces of cinema for him to have never ever won an Oscar seems kind of obscene in a way like he was nominated a couple of times and a few of his actors and actresses over the years were nominated but not too much success and it just it seems a sort of bizarre omission from the the academy i think over over the entire body of his career not just that one film but that's just one i singled out in particular cool cool John, your pick my last pick is the 1946 classic a matter of life and death stars david niven it's directed by paul and pressburger this is a film that pretty much has got Oscar bait written all over it. It's a fantasy, it's a romance, it's got very upper class British people in it, <laughs> it's got Americans in it. Just a fantastic piece of work. story behind it is an airman who is flying back across the channel after a, a raid against the, the Nazis. His plane is basically going down and there's nothing to do about it. There's no parachute, which I'll I thought it was a bit of an oversight to begin with but (laughs) (laughs) in his last moments he engages in conversation with an American radio operator and basically in the space of about a minute and a half they fall in love now he was supposed to die when the plane hits the water but for some reason he miraculously escapes he goes and finds this woman and they develop this relationship only to find out that he was supposed to die but he was plucked out early just before by basically his his guardian angel if you like the rest of the film is basically setting is set up so that he has to basically lobby in order to stay on earth because he has fallen in love now there's two distinct parts to this film there's a part that's actually set in the english countryside it's in three strip technicolor it's very vibrant very nice and then there's these amazing scenes that you will definitely seen on the television of the stairway to heaven element of it and actually being in heaven and this is all in black and white which is just such an amazing contrast between the two and the way there's there's a scene in it where they actually bleed in the color from the black and white and it's just amazing it's just absolutely brilliant it's david niven at his height of his powers he's obviously this upper class Englishman, he plays that very, very well. He'd been doing that for years and years. He was a very underrated actor as far as I was concerned because he was very versatile. He could do comedy, he could do drama. It was just expected of him to be this type of guy and it wasn't really recognised as far as I'm concerned, and the the range they actually had. And obviously, Powell and Pressburger, just, their body of work is just absolutely amazing. But for whatever reason, they just did not get a, any sort of sniff of an award for this just <laughs> it belies belief it really does i haven't seen that but that sounds incredible oh, it's a fantastic that. and I, I love david niven i love that cut glass 
accent that he has but i've never ever seen that and that that sounds amazing i haven't seen it either yeah it's an education for everybody then this yeah. podcast isn't it so we've all got things <laughs> to watch for. I'm, just, I'm just grateful <laughs> that you uh, that other people haven't seen films as well because i feel like when we come to make our picks every week i'm like nope 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 <laughs> but everything you guys see i feel like uncultured swine amongst perils that's what it is Jimmy, your last pick Yes, I have went with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Now, I think this film needs much of an introduction, but for those that haven't heard of it, please listen to the previous podcast. I think I mentioned it <laughs> at least once every two <laughs> in some way. But yeah, I mean, this this is a Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, where Jack Nicholson's a caretaker. He goes to look at look at the look after the Overlook Hotel over the winter for him and his family isolated. <laughs> Very topical. And he goes insane. But the ghost in the hotel basically starts speaking to him, which is going to make anybody go crazy. But yeah, it goes nuts and tries to kill his family. And not only did this movie get overlooked at the Oscars, it was nominated for Razzies. What? Yes. This movie was a massive flop when it came out. Hardly anybody went to see it. Critics absolutely panned it. And it's crazy to think that almost 40 years later, it's considered such a seminal work. It was the only of Kubrick's last nine movies not to get a Best Director nomination. Do you see what else he's made since then? <laughs> he got eyes wide shut. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this movie just got totally overlooked. Uh, you can't even really blame any kind of production issues and stuff. Like King, Stephen King didn't like it. Famously, Shelley Duvall and Kubrick didn't get on. These things happen in some of the, the greatest films ever. And these trouble productions become quite legendary. But with this, no people at the time just weren't having it and it's only been in years gone by that it's been given the respect and credit and admiration and adulation that I think it deserves but at the time, yeah, nobody had any time for it whatsoever It's bizarre isn't it, it really is, considering that it's such a good film, I think it did get a quite an early following like sort of a fan following but it didn't get the critical respect that it actually deserved I, I don't understand why. I can understand why Stephen King wasn't particularly happy with the, yeah. the changes in it, which is I, I found quite surprising having watched Doctor Sleep quite recently. The number of images that are actually taken straight from the Shining film with regards to the Overlook Hotel. So there's obviously clear lineage between the two, and he was obviously quite happy with that. Mm-hmm. But maybe he's just made his peace with some of that sort of stuff. I think he has for the most part. I mean, quite interesting, very, one of the most famous critics, actually, Roger Ebert. Um, he was initially critical of the film when it came out in 2006, inducted the film into his great movie series. So he really changed his mind over, over the years, as many people did. But it's very interesting how it was so widely panned when it came out that for the majority of the, the critics in the community and just film, the film world in general, did a massive 180 on it. This yeah. is that movie just got it was overlooked when it came out. It was fairly like rubbished. I wonder why that was. I mean, to me, it's a film that is extremely distressing. I feel like it really gets under your skin. Like Shelley Duvall really gives me the heebie-jeebies from this film. Like I find it very, very distressing. I wonder why it was like, as you say, not just overlooked. It was actively panned. Yeah, I mean, kind of looking at some of the reviews from the time, the film was slow pacing. What was that? That's a strange one because films at that time weren't exactly a cut every second and a half. They were seeing a supernatural story showed frustratingly little rhyme or reason. The horrific images were overbearing and irrelevant. It just seems that the, the things people didn't like about the movie are the things they like about it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe it was just trendy to not like it. Do you know what I mean? I feel like sometimes when people either love a film, like everyone loves it, and there's these extreme gushings in reviews, or people don't like it, like it's, people like to you know be part of a collective, don't they? I mean, in 20 years, 20, 30, 40 years' time, people might look back at Suicide Squad and recognise it for this cultural masterpiece that it is. And you know what? <laughs> Suicide Squad had, had won an Oscar. <laughs> I honestly thought you were going to say people were going to look back on Hustlers, and I was like, right. <laughs> yeah, Hustlers didn't get an Oscar. But, I mean, look at the movies that can't dominate the Oscars that year. Uh, the most nominations went to The Elephant Man and Raging Bull that go eight each, with ordinary people winning the most awards. But I find it quite interesting that throughout all of our picks, Scorsese and De Niro do pop up quite a lot, mm. which is interesting when you think about how little Scorsese the one that we'd nominated for at times. But yeah, there's, there's, certainly, there's certainly, there's certainly works. Campaign. Sorry? Where's his campaign? Like, his everyone's campaign. all following them, was, following themselves one. for Leo? 
there was a kind of well, the, the Leo campaign kind of came after the Scorsese campaign, but there was always that kind of push. Scorsese, as much as I think the party's a great film, I don't think it deserved the fall of the party. It deserved it much earlier than that. And the same DiCaprio and The Revenant. It's a great performance, but that's what you're giving it for. <laughs> there is a certain element to that with the Oscars, isn't there? That they, It's almost like they're giving it for another performance or another film rather than the one that they're actually up for. It's almost like a pity thing, which is never really good. No, it was even crazier, the fact that with the... I don't know if they're going to change the rules of the Oscars this year being that nothing's really come out in the cinema or is Jim Carrey going to win Best Actor or Best Supporting Actor <laughs> or Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> <laughs> because if they're going to stick to their guns in terms of the rules <laughs> I think they should actually <laughs> that would be hysterical if only he wasn't a herpes spreading creep ah uh, yeah no, it's a shame because I love Jim Carrey I think he's excellent but yeah the anti-vax thing doesn't go away Oh, is he anti-vax as well? Yeah. Oh, for God's sake. I thought I was referring to, sorry. Oh, no, I was talking about the girlfriend that he knowingly infected with the herpes. Ah, charming. Absolutely charming. <laughs> so, that is a wrap-up of our favourite movies, or movies that we, we can't believe were, were never considered by the Academy for one reason or another. I don't think there's any film news circulating at the moment, largely because there's no films out at the cinema. Do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? Any shout-outs you'd like to give? The only thing that I saw with regards to film news was the fact that pretty much everything is getting put back. Yeah. But not just put back a couple of months. There are films that are actually get put back for a whole year. Like Fast and Furious is put back a year. There's all sorts of things that it's 11, 12 months. It's really crazy. Now, the Fast and Furious one makes sense because that's just filled the slot that the next Fast and Furious film is supposed to be in. Mm-hmm. But there's films, obviously the Bond films put back to November. But Top Gun is December. Yeah, it's going to get very, very crowded Yeah. next year. And perhaps it won't because the films that were supposed to come out then are obviously going to get delayed as well. It's going to be an interesting time because at some point there's going to be a cut-off where films that were in production just now or were due to be in production just now were supposed to be getting released. So there may be a bit of time where there won't actually be the films for them to show depending on how long this lockdown goes on. If this goes on until July... There are films that would be in post-production just now, getting ready for July release, and there's going to be nothing there for them to show. I mean, if this goes on until July, I'll be doing my best Jack Nicholson impression. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can't do this until July. It's very, very boring. The only thing that's kind of popped up here, Denis Villeneuve. I love him, but I don't understand why he's remaking Dune. Like, that was so badly panned. When it came out, like it's an odd choice for him to remake, but I will go and see it because it's him. See, I like the fact that he's remaking it though, because I like the fact that they're starting to remake terrible films as opposed to. Don't worry, I've, I've never <laughs> seen it. Like for Leprechaun Five, is that what you're telling me? They've already remade Leprechaun a couple of times to be fair, and it's very good. But I think, I mean, I've not seen the original. I know it's a cult classic, and people absolutely adore it, and they're all looking forward to this. But you know, why don't? More film directors remake bad films and try to make them good rather than tarnishing classics. Yes, well, Dune, when it came out, was it was a wee bit misunderstood. It was a David Lynch film, obviously, so it was never going to be this mainstream film. But there's a performance in it by Sting, and he makes Val Kilmer look good. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, Sting is not very good as an actor in pretty much anything I've seen, and he is awful here yeah but he's really bad kyle mclaughlin is good yes um, and i and i just i love david lynch like i don't want to slag it but i know it is really really like nobody likes june but there's a lot of obviously excitement over timothy chalamet and rebecca ferguson and javier bardem like it's a solid solid cast so mm-hmm. and i love Denis Villeneuve. so i will be really really intrigued to see what he does with this it's interesting that he's taken on the work of a director who's so different to him as well, just in terms of style and like thematics throughout their film. So I'm, I'll be really, really intrigued to see how this turns out. Yeah, my only kind of knowledge of it really is I had a, a Sting action figure from that movie when I was a kid. <laughs> May I ask why? Was that a purchase that you made? Or? I, I was no near old enough to be at the shorts myself. <laughs> <laughs> that point i just remember it and like i just always remember it from june and then not realize until years later fucking hell that's thing <laughs> <laughs> oh john you're so right it's a really terrible performance it's a, a 
don't know why he was picked or cast. It's bizarre. He was he was big. He was a he was in a popular beat combo around about that time. So. No, I know. I just mean like, why him? Surely there are maybe other maybe other singers to connect. Well, do you know he's a he's a bassist, uh, the Constantine character. No, is it? Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, uh, the the look he's it was based on him. The visual look. Okay, oh, from, I get that. Yeah. From Quadrophenia um, with the, I can I can see that actually. Yeah, with the blonde hair and everything. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And the character of Lucifer. From the from the same group, new gaming comics so kind of intertwined. Uh, his original look was based on Bowie. Ah, right, okay. Mm. A bit of, a bit of trivia. But yeah, they, they even so far they went and brought a Hellblazer, Constantine, like hardback, big collector edition book out a couple of years ago, and Sting actually did the foreword. <laughs> did he? Yeah, which is pretty cool. I just uh, can't take Sting seriously because I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's like a random episode of Family Guy where they basically make fun of his songs and they say it's just like vowel sounds and then like the title of the song at the end and they like they do like a version of a song and every time I hear Sting now, that's all I think of. <laughs> and the tantric sex, obviously. Well, thank you very much for listening to our Locked In podcast. If you have any suggestions as to what you would like to see us cover, in brackets, please not Hellraiser, send your requests to podcast at moviescramble.com make John's day by blowing up his inbox so it's goodbye from me and we'll see you next time and goodbye from Simeon and John <laughs>